Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. England's triumph in Euro 2022 has captured the hearts of the nation, and it seems like it could lead to lasting change in women's soccer in that country and beyond. But while many are making comparisons to the United States' win in the 1999 World Cup, there are some key differences as well, and Meg Linehan is here to talk about some of them. From The Athletic, I'm Alex Abnos, and this is Soccer Every Day for Thursday, August 4th. All right, Captain Obvious here reporting news from days ago. England are European champions in a thrilling game in front of sold out Wembley Stadium. 87,000, over 87,000 watched the England women beat Germany 2-1 in extra time to take home their first major trophy. It was loud. It was raucous. The game was awesome. It was also really emotional. And as you might imagine, people are talking about how the impact of that moment will last for years to come. And one of those people is my colleague here at The Athletic, Meg Linehan. Meg... I think we can both agree that Euro 22 as a whole was a uh, Euro 22 as a whole was a really really fun tournament, and the atmosphere at all the England games were really good. But as you were watching that final with all that noise, um, all of the great plays that we saw, the goals, the back and forth, what was going through your mind? I mean, well, first of all, honestly, the fact that I wasn't there was a little <laughs> a little tough. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah. But I mean, what is exciting, and we're going to get into this, is that the U.S. Women's National Team is heading to that exact same stadium, and it's going to be probably just as sold out and just as loud. So we're going to get a second crack at it. But, you know, I think what's been really interesting, there was this immediate comparison in that game. Chloe Kelly <laughs> scores the go-ahead goal in, in extra time hesitates for to make sure that the goal actually stands, like is not going to get reviewed, right? And then does the Brandy Chastain full-on celebration. And so I think everybody kind of instantly goes, okay, like this is kind of their 99. They're hosting a tournament, right? Um, we, we know it's going to have these ripple effects. I mean, Brandy Chastain has even said, like, this is the moment that changes the culture of the game right? Like you cannot replicate what hosting and winning a tournament on home soil is going to do for the game in England. But, you know, I think two main things were running through my head is like, yeah, the 99 comparison is legit. But I think there's also kind of some shades of the US Women's National Team in 2011 as well. And just that, that to me was kind of the tournament that kicked off the modern era of the US Women's National Team, like the last decade, you don't have wins in 2015 and 2019 without what happened in 2011 as this kind of big game-changing moment for the U.S. women's national team. But I think the other part of it, too, is that, you know, we can talk about these comparisons and the parallels to 99 and, and 2011, but now we have this, and it is really funny that we have 99, 11, 22 now. Yeah. And this kind of sequence, like, it's a perfect sequential set of numbers, um, but it's going to live on as its own thing, as its own moment, but it is going to have, a, I think, a global ripple effect in terms of 
lifting a lot of people across the global game and not just having it it's obviously going to have this huge massive impact in England but it's going to impact the game here in America it's going to impact the game across Europe it's just really going to it's going to force a lot of people to up their game because all of a sudden England is going to get a lot a lot a lot of attention well, first of all, before I go any further, I think we should make advanced plans to just nail everything down and don't do anything in 2033, because clearly there will be a major, <laughs> major, major women's soccer event happening then. We can count on it now. We have the precedent. Uh, Meg, you've had basically a front row seat in multiple roles to so much of the growth of women's game in this country starting in 99. You've talked before about how that was sort of the trigger event for you as it was for so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the 2011 uh, comparison is interesting as well. We'll get to that a little, a little bit later. And you have a piece out for The Athletic right now that talks about sort of how all these things could be at play in, uh, in England's case and uh, how maybe they might be different. So I think in one sense, the similarities to 99 are obvious. You mentioned some of them. It's a major tournament hosted at home, huge stadium, uh, winning goal, shirt off, celebration, all these things. But what are some of the differences that you see? Like, how is where England is in women's football right now different from where the USA was in women's football when they won in 1999? I mean, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, England can kind of take its love of football for granted. Right. We were not taking that for granted in 99. It was not any sort of like, you know, I played soccer growing up. Right. But there was not this kind of clear path. Right. Like we're just in, first of all, a completely different era of the growth of the game. And and I wanted to really highlight just really the level of domestic club football is just, I think, on a very different level than where we were at in 99. What, What is interesting about the two comparison points I wanted to make with 99 and 11 both of those events here in the U.S. were kind of used to launch things, really. Like, 99 begets WUSA, the first women's pro league in the U.S., which I was involved in as an as an intern in the first season. In 2011, you literally have WPS, the second league, kind of falling apart as you get this big breakthrough moment, right? And then you have this weird gap year and then the formation of the NWSL. So there is kind of enough momentum to get... Like, I don't think the NWSL happens if we don't get 2011 as a World Cup, even though it's not necessarily like a direct connection. There's enough steam that happens to kind of get the NWSL going and to force, I think, U.S. soccer's hand into saying, like, we're going to back this league. So I think the big, the, the, the very obvious thing is we're just like in a different state of the game. And so what I think has been really interesting is that we're putting all of these Euro success moments in conversation with all of the other big kind of record-breaking stuff that's been happening in the women's game. Like you look at Barcelona attendance numbers, you look at the growth of the Women's Champions League and how much more accessible it is. The fact that we were able to also watch Euros on ESPN, the production quality was extremely high. They brought in, you know, Emma Hayes and Steffi Jones, like, people who know the game and and can talk about it well so i think we're just we're in like a different level of the stratosphere (laughs) at this point in terms of growth of the game and so now when you get to these kind of big acceleration moments right so much more of the recipe for success is now in place for 22 to be that big growth moment because all of the stuff in the larger ecosystem of the women's game 
has finally kind of been built in a way where it's actually going to be able to play off of each other in a way that's way more helpful than, you know, in, in 99 and 11, we're using it here in the U.S. to try to build that infrastructure. It's right. finally here. And so this is really, I think it's going to be an interesting case study uh, for a lot of reasons in terms of not just how it impacts other countries, but also I think how maybe a place like England that has a little bit more infrastructure already in place and already has, I, there's kind of like four key ingredients that I talked to that are, is going to allow them to maybe like truly just like flip the switch and go. Yeah. On on the professional domestic level, you know, at the club level. And we don't necessarily have that here in the U.S. A a big a big one of those, uh, you know, pieces of infrastructure is obviously the Women's Super League. Um, It has been growing just based uh, on my own sort of like general impression like this this is a league that's getting more and more players to come over uh more and more uh club teams with recognizable names and recognizable brands are investing more and more money slowly in some cases but uh what sort of things does the super league and its clubs have to do to really take advantage of this moment you talk a little bit in the piece about how nwsl and other uh women's pro leagues that have existed throughout sort of have struggled sometimes to take full advantage of really deep or really uh, uh, World Cup runs by the U.S. women's national team. What do you think the WSL will have to do to really capitalize on this moment? Uh, And how are their challenges going to be different than, say, NWSL or WPS or WUSA? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think what's going to be really interesting is just... You know, here in the U.S., we tend to play through major tournaments, right? And so, like, you have players trying to come back, right? So you you do get this, like, immediate burst of interest, generally, in the U.S. following a major tournament. And then by the time the next season rolls around, you don't necessarily see those numbers carrying through. But what I think is going to be really interesting to watch about England is the fact that they have a whole month, basically, to build between winning Euros, and then the start of the WSL season. So first of all, two things have already happened too. You have this kind of immediate launch of like, everyone I think has been really good at the messaging of like, oh, did you like watching that game? Guess what? It's super easy for you to not just necessarily watch the Women's Super League, but attend games, right? And it's mm-hmm. very cheap and affordable and, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, they put the U.S. Women's National Team game on sale, too, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Obviously, like, huge success on the national team front, right? So the, now the goal is, okay, we have, to, we have to pull all of these eyeballs and say, okay, it's not just England players necessarily either, right? There are players from other nations who played in Euros who are on these teams, and you can follow them week in, week out. Um, but they have a full month, not just to say like buy your tickets, but to like actually educate people on how the league might work for new time fans. And it's not just trying to dump them in halfway through a season. They they get a whole month, the start of a season, you get the full narrative, right? Like we don't get to enjoy that <laughs> over right. here. And I think it's going to be a really interesting case study of. I think they're they're going to do some significant numbers because you get a full month to just hit people, hit people, hit hit people and say, these are the players you need to learn about. These are how you're going to watch the games. Now, I do think the one really interesting difference is 
I'm, I'm tempting fate by bringing this up. Like we do get kind of a full season schedule in the NWSL and we will set aside complaints about when that drops. But sure. that is not the case in England. They confirm like two months of games at a time. It's very strange. So like long-term planning is a little bit harder there and you can buy season tickets and all that kind of stuff. But if you're trying to like as an American say, oh, I want to go for a game, you know, at X month or whatever. Right. It, it is still a little weird. You can't really plan out months in advance. They have like September and October fixtures kind of set. And then so they just kind of right. like drop the schedule in chunks, which I find really weird. But that is, I think, really the only, you know, in terms of all of the pros they have right at the moment in being able to build to a season with a potential huge number of new eyeballs like they've they've really got kind of this perfect storm going in terms of TV deals. They've got revenue already in place. They have a month. Right. Like it's going to be really interesting to watch some of these numbers come in at the start of the season. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Do you think that this could have a ripple effect on the NWSL uh, and sort oh, of and, and having because in terms of making the WSL more competitive on a commercial basis, like 100%. right alongside. And I mean, I think we're already seeing, you know, like we saw a whole bunch of NWSL folks go over for Euros. We've seen them go over for Women's Champions League, too. Like the NWSL is not going to just get to sit on its little butt and say, like, oh, we're the best league in the world anymore. They're just right. not like. I think the argument still is valid that the NWSL has the most parity across any league, but now it's. I just think it's really hard for, let's say, Chicago Red Stars to compete with an Arsenal, right? Like they have established brands, right? And and to be fair, like you do have this kind of top chunk, like a you know it's generally four or five teams that are really competing in the Women's Super League. So again, I do think parity is a legit like advantage, advantage. the NWSL yeah. has. But I mean, the NWSL, if every single person in the league is not looking at what Barcelona has been doing, what the WSL is about to do, the growth of Champions League, the accessibility of these games, the fact that Americans can now watch them and potentially have, you know, now multiple loyalties. But, you know, if you're going to choose between maybe like a Kim Little OL Rain jersey and a Kim Little Arsenal jersey, which one are you going to pick, right? So it is going to become a little bit more of a money competition and I think also attracting and retaining talent. Like, you know, players have spoken to me on on full-time, Rachel Daly, saying, 
it's really hard for international players to come play in the NWSL because of the way that this schedule works right now. And those are going to have to be the logistical things that they not just take care of, but legitimately make attractive for international talent. And you can't just hope and pray that Angel City or San Diego Wave currently on the top of the table or a Portland is going to be enough to pull people over to want to play here. Well, let's come back a little bit to the international side of things. Uh, last question for you here, Meg. The U.S. and England have announced that they'll be playing a friendly at Wembley Stadium on October 7th. This is obviously going to be a huge game. It's already sold out. Um, what do you think the U.S. approach will be to that game? Because it strikes me that in addition to uh, all of uh, the experiences that England have had in Euro 22, they've had tons of really competitive games against really, really good teams. They've had this great cultural moment. It seems like the momentum could not possibly be And be they're going to have home them. field advantage and in front of like 87,000 screaming people. Yeah. On the other side, you have the U.S., which, yes, won the CONCACAF qualifying uh, tournament, but it's not the same level of competition mm-hmm. that I think England faced in the Euros. They're going through a little bit of a transitional moment still with uh, with a lot of their squad. There are still a lot of roles to be uh, firmed up here. What's, what's their approach going to be for this game, do you think? Is the U.S. actually going to be at a disadvantage here against England for what seems like the first time maybe ever? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think they will. I I think that's fair to say that they're going to be at a disadvantage and it's not necessarily a bad thing just because I think there's a really big difference between what England has to do this summer into next summer, right? Like it's very different to say we're a team that needs to peak for Euros and then a year later. I mean, they have to peak basically three years in a row, right? Which I think is a very tall ask for a team. Whereas the U.S. does kind of get to go through that actual cycle process, even though, again, it was delayed. Like England has a really tough kind of ask ahead of them for like three, you know, potentially three major tournaments. Right. Whereas the U.S. gets to build to 2023. And so, you know, Vlako Andonovsky, when I asked him in Mexico, like, are you ready to play in a World Cup? And he says, no, not right. Like we're, we're at where we should be at. Like he got a lot of of pushback for that answer but that's honestly the answer that i think you want to hear because why should the u.s be peaking at at this particular moment the the level of competition in Concacaf is not like the level of competition at at the euros and i think that's fair enough to say and absolutely the u.s got like a legitimate test honestly the first one they've had all year against canada in the final and i Mm -hmm. think they lived up to that test finally But I think the big question is going to be for the U.S. of, you know, if you go over to Europe and you play in Europe, first of all, that's going to be great development for the team. Mm -hmm. The expectation is, of course, going to be a win. But do you actually get more out of it with with a draw or a loss? Maybe you're going to get a lot of really panicked people calling for Vlako Andonovsky's head. But, like, I do think that they're just kind of in two different places as a team, but also the U.S. women's national team is never going to look at this as a, like, they'll talk about it, but the goal is going over and saying, like, no, we're going to prove a point. Like, we're not going to let England think that we're better than us. Now, Meg, granted, we're months away from this game. We don't know the squads yet. We don't know anything other than that it's happening and where it's happening. 
Any predictions? <laughs> can, can I, we... <laughs> I was actually on a, a call this morning because we were talking about attendance stuff, and I was joking how I wanted a 2-2 draw just for <laughs> both narrative purposes, but also so we would hopefully get some good goals, but also like both fan bases could maybe be like at a tie for yeah. it. Like we're not going to get a final answer hopefully until, cause I think it's going to be more interesting, honestly, to get some of these, these bigger questions. You know, I, I do think that um, they're having conversations with Spain for the second game. It does probably look like Spain will be the second game. And, you know, I, I just ultimately think that, what has been really interesting, I just remember going to, to France in 2019 for the World Cup and everybody, including myself, thinking like this this tournament is going to be way more competitive, right? And that's not really how it turned out. And so I think this game is maybe going to be the first taste of like, are we really going to get maybe a more competitive tournament at the top in 2023? And personally, like that's better for the game if yeah. that's what we get. I can't wait for this game. I think it's going to be super fun. And I know that you are too. And we'll have you back on the show uh, probably many times before that, but certainly uh, just before October 7th. Until then, Meg, thank you so much for coming on Soccer Every Day today. Thank you for having me as always. Thank you so much again to Meg Winahan for coming on. If you want to hear more from her, please subscribe to her show, Full Time with Meg Winahan. It's available wherever you get your podcasts and on The Athletic if you prefer to listen ad-free like I do. On that show, she has conversations with people from all around the world of women's soccer, and it's definitely worth a listen. Next up, your TV guide for today. All times are Eastern as usual. Two games to keep an eye on here tonight. In the Copa Libertadores, in the corner final first leg, Atletico Paranaense versus Estudiantes. That is on BN Sports at 8.30 p.m. in both the United States and Canada. In Liga Emekis at 10 p.m., Atlas takes on Queretaro. That is on VIX Plus in the United States. This show is produced by Mike Zimmerman with help from John Hayes. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, where you can listen ad-free you can subscribe for $1 a month for six months by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. Before we go, I want to leave you with something special. Over on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, producer Sophie Penny put together a great montage of some of the best moments from an outstanding Euro 2022 tournament. I wanted you all to hear it too. Now, this montage appears at the end of their show that was just posted after the final of Euro 2022. It includes interviews with some of the England players, recordings from within the stadium. You hear from fans. The emotion of the moment really, really comes through. They do some great analysis of the game itself. Uh, with the WSL season getting underway in a month, I definitely recommend subscribing to that show to keep track of everything that's happening over there. Once again, that's the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. It's available on The Athletic and wherever you get any of your podcasts. All that said, we'll close with that montage today. Thank you so much for listening and happy soccer to you all. As we record Wednesday, the 6th of July, the opening day of the Women's Euros 2022. The main story being that we won't get to see the Spanish megastar Alexia Puteas at this tournament. She's out with a ruptured ACL. England's Euros got off, well, to a nervy start.
production. Serena's instruction. That's a splendid save by Fantopsla. And remember, it's only your second match in the national team, and it's on the European Championship, and it's the first match. So it's incredible, and, and uh, we've all seen how talented she is. England scored the most goals of any team ever in a Euros game, men or women. Eight goals. I still don't quite know what to say about it. You know, every time Beth scored, she kept looking over and I was like standing on my chair. Billy Blank has never seen more football in her life and she was shooketh. I didn't envy them having to play those temperatures today. Yeah, I'm ready for my ice bath, Kelly. I don't know about you. Another player to add to our ACL team, Francis Marie Antoinette Cototo. Italy, it must be said, I mean, finishing bottom of the group, you have to say, have been probably the biggest disappointments of this tournament, even more so than the Norway, who obviously crashed out earlier than we expected. Serena Wiegmann out with COVID. Didn't really matter as it turned out. It's a lovely turn. Rousseau, England, march into the quarterfinals in frightening form. Surely, yes, Northern Ireland have scored. Northern Ireland have a goal in international competition football. What an opportunity, what a moment. You, you were there at the first time that they qualified for the major tournament, so huge. I think they will be really proud of spells. Space opening up for Georgia Stanway. Goes for goal! Coming up, Germany pop up with another win. Saved by Everard, and what an important save that was as well. Bouncy castles for rent. That's her company that does that. No. It was hard to see Viviana Miedema. She was teared up. They all had this wish, you know, to defend uh, their European title. The last semi-final, I, th I think France v Germany is going to be so, so difficult to call. Yeah, 10 years of making quarterfinals never further, and now they have. Coming up, Alex pops on fire. News flash this evening. England will play against the eight-time champions, Germany, on Sunday night. Da, da, da. just won the Euros, their first major trophy, and on home soil as the hosts. I literally don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight, guys. Proud to be English. I can't tell you how proud I am.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.